Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. We got the full crew today. Joining us on the show today is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Happy to have everybody back. Also joining us today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Happy to be here. And back after a little break is Ben Stout. Ben, welcome back. Happy to be back. Thank you very much. All right. So on this week's show, we have a new Democrat in the race for the U.S. Senate. Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkston, has joined Teresa Tomlinson in that Democratic primary. We'll discuss his chances and how his entry into the race impacts how that might turn out. Then one reason that Ted Terry might have joined this race is we've got fundraising totals coming in for the Georgia Senate and congressional races. We'll discuss who is bringing in the big bucks and who may not be. And then finally, immigration has continued to dominate the political debate in Washington as lawmakers and the public have looked on with horror at the conditions facing people detained while in asylum. We'll talk about some recent developments in that and how Democrats running for president are addressing the issue of immigration. Uh, But before we get to those big topics this week, we've got some updates on some small stories for you, some stories that we've been following so far. Uh, Luke, why don't you kick us off? There was some new developments on the uh, Supreme Court ruling on the citizenship question on the census and how the Trump administration is responding to that ruling. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so... As all of you probably know by now, the Supreme Court said that the Trump administration could not put the citizenship question on the census using the justification that they had brought to the Supreme Court. Uh, Pretty much after that, most of the administration had said, well, you know, we tried, but we don't have enough time to, you know, keep this litigation going. So we're going to go ahead and print the census without the question. Uh, But then, like many things in this administration, uh, Donald Trump didn't like that. And so he tweeted out that, nope, the question's going to be on there. They're going to find a way. They're going to make it happen. Question's definitely going to be on there. And so the government's been scrambling and trying to, uh, you know, make arguments at the court to continue the case. They've tried a lot of procedural motions and They've tried to change their lawyers and all these types of things, and really, it does not seem like the federal judges have any interest in humoring them with any of these moves that they're making, and so, all in all, there's a lot of noise, but I think at the end of the day, my initial assessment was correct in that there's not going to be a citizenship question on the census uh, at the end of the day. I think it's going to be chaotic for a couple more weeks, but they just don't have enough time, and they're obviously not organized enough to make this thing happen, so I just think they're going to keep fumbling the ball until eventually someone calls this game. And so thank you for that update, Luke. And then, Megan, we've got another update on a case that will come before the Supreme Court in October on uh, employment discrimination. Can you tell us about some recent developments out of Georgia on that case? Sure. So Bostock v. Clayton County, um, which is one of the LGBTQ cases that you mentioned, Kyle, um, did originate in Georgia. And it started when Gerald Lynn Bostock was fired after his employer found out he was gay. Um, it's actually been combined with two other LGBT, LGBTQ, gotta get the alphabet right, related cases, and it's scheduled to be heard in October. So if it's not scheduled till then, why bring it up now? Well, 
We've had several amicus briefs um, get filed over the past couple of weeks, including one from our very own Georgia Equality, which is a local LGBTQ advocacy organization whose executive director, incidentally, his name's Jeff Graham, he's been on our show. Um, So the brief is in support of the LGBTQ people who were discriminated against by their employers. Georgia Equality says, quote, the brief argues that employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity increases the already high rate of prejudice LGBTQ people experience at work. It also contributes to the increased harassment of LGBTQ employees, which range from denial of jobs and promotions to physical and sexual assault, end quote. So one of the briefs filed earlier this month, in addition to the one by Georgia Equality, was signed by 206 U.S. businesses, which according to the Human Rights Campaign is, quote, more corporate signers than any previous business brief in an LGBTQ non-discrimination case, end quote. Um, this, this gets pretty interesting because from polling, we're hearing that the nation is generally stable-ish this year in its acceptance of the LGBTQ community with about 49% of Americans saying that they're generally accepting. Um, but this is despite a growing number of people in our own age group on this podcast, which is the 18 to 34 group. Um, who have said that they're less comfortable around LGBTQ people as compared to previous polling years. So I'm definitely curious to see how people and businesses continue to react and how the court finally rules. Hopefully we'll hear something this fall and we'll definitely be keeping track of it. All right. Thanks, Megan. Yeah, we'll be uh, returning to that case once oral arguments happen in the fall. Um, A couple other quick hits on news today. We're recording on Wednesday and it was a really busy news day, which is kind of an oddity for the summer. Uh, But today, uh, the AJC reported that Judge Amy Totenberg, who has been overseeing a case challenging the security of Georgia's voting system, uh, she is going to allow outside computer experts to analyze the voter databases used in the 2018 elections as a part of that case. That's a really intriguing development that we will come back to once we kind of hear how that turns out. Uh, But we're probably going to learn more about the security of our election system pretty soon. Uh, State Senator Steve Henson, he's the Democrats' leader in the state Senate, he announced today that he is not running for re-election. He's been in the Senate off and on since 1990, uh, but he said he is leaving his position to focus on helping Democrats regain seats in the chamber in 2020, and then he wants to go home and retire afterwards. Jumping in real quick on a question on that, um, as a spectator on the outside looking in, my obvious take is uh, with such kind of a long and established guy, leaving the uh, leadership, that leadership position for uh, Senate Democrats. Uh, with all the press she's been getting, Jen Jordan is, would seem to be uh, a very hot contender for taking over that position. I'm wondering who do you all think becomes the new minority leader? Oh, that's an interesting question. I that's a great thought of that. question. There's also Nakima uh, Williams, who's our current Democratic Party of Georgia chair. I don't know if there'd be some kind of conflict of interest of her being both, but I kind of feel I feel like if she was not DPG chair, she would be the obvious choice. But well, I feel like it's also going to be a pretty time constraint issue, right? Like I can't imagine she has more bandwidth. I'd love to see Jen Jordan. Yeah, I think I Jen Jordan strikes me as as the the top one there, supposing that she stays in the state Senate. I mean, you know, she could get drawn out into some other race, statewide race uh, or congressional race in the next few years. So, you know, that might be a tell on her future plans as to whether or not she tries to run for for leadership of the Senate Democrats. Absolutely. Some other people that could 
potentially be leaguer are the people who are already in leadership and uh i'll just name them just for listeners uh interest so we have the democratic whip who's harold jones we have the caucus chair who's gloria butler we have the vice chair Manuel jones and we have the caucus secretary nan orock all of them have been in the legislature for quite some time so uh there are possibilities. Uh, you know, Steve Henson's been in the leadership for so long. I don't think there's an obvious successor, uh, but I think uh, there's plenty of people who could be in the running. All right, and then one more piece of news before we get to the big topics uh, today. Governor Kemp announced that Amazon is going to create a thousand jobs in a fulfillment center in Gwinnett and DeKalb counties. Um, this comes after the state offered $2 billion in an incentive package for the company's second headquarters. Uh, but as our listeners probably remember, Amazon passed us up uh, to to head up my way uh, into the D.C. suburbs in Northern Virginia and put their headquarters there. Uh, but we are going to get 1,000 jobs from Amazon out of this. And uh, one-day shipping, is that what we talked yes, about before we, we got in there? So we already have it, and I get to take advantage of it because there is a uh, an Amazon, I guess, store that's really close to me. So that'll just add more products, hopefully. It'll also add more bandwidth. So right now it's mainly like downtown and very urban parts of Atlanta that have one day delivering. You'll see much more Metro Atlanta uh, uh, receiving one day delivering with this new facility. All right, so let's dive into our first topic this week. Uh, So we have a new Democrat joining the race for the Senate. Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkston, joined the race on Wednesday morning. And you may know Terry from being one of the state's most progressive mayors. He promoted Clarkston's acceptance of refugees, and he also made the city the first city in Georgia to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana. If you don't know him as mayor, you might also know him from his appearance on season two of Queer Eye, where Jonathan Van Ness made him lose that resistance beard that he has. Uh, let's talk about his entry into this race. And really, let's start with the fact that, at least me, I didn't see this coming at all. Do y'all think that his entry into this race is surprising? Uh, because he was not really mentioned among the group of candidates like Sarah riggs and John Ossoff, who who may be gearing up for a run. So as an avid fan of Queer Eye, of course, um, I I wouldn't say necessarily that I'm surprised. Um he, it's not like he was on my radar. I won't, I don't want to overstate this, but knowing his name and then having his name come up in this, I'm like, oh, well, duh, of course. So, you know. I would say there's two questions here. Uh, is it surprising that Ted Terry got in? Yes. Is it surprising that someone else got in? No. And, you know, this is a hinting at the next topic, but after Teresa Tomlinson's less than stellar fundraising, I, I'm really surprised more people haven't jumped in who have been hinting like John Ossoff, like Sarah Examico. Yeah, Ben, what do you think about Ted Terry getting into this race? It, it was uh, pretty widely described that Terry would push this field to the left, given his progressive record as the mayor of Clarkston. Um, does that excite people from the right that this field could be pushed further to the left? To be honest, I'd never heard of who he was. And... Uh... And him getting in, if it pushes it further to the left, um, I, you know, that's a mixed bag. I think that many would say that uh, when comparing to Democrats who have run uh, kind of the statewide elections the past, your, your you know, uh, Senator Carter and, and Michelle Nunn and others, uh, I think that 
Stacey Abrams certainly pushed that field to the left, but she did so in a way that energized the base, that brought out new voters. And so I think that that was a good thing for the left. And so it really just depends on who is pushing it to the left, not just is it being put, is the, the field being pushed to the left. And with him getting in um, without knowing him super well, but just from what, uh, the little bit I've read, he doesn't exactly strike me as a super dynamic kind of um, impress everybody. He talks to Stacey Abrams-esque candidate. And as a result, I'm not too concerned about him moving it to the left or right. I, it's kind of a non-factor. So let's talk a little bit about his record as mayor of Clarkston. I think he enters this race probably with the most progressive record of uh, elected officials who are going to jump into this race. He led Clarkston in decriminalizing marijuana possession in 2016. Um, he also, um, maybe most important to our current context, he has been probably the most visible advocate for refugees and immigration in the city of Clarkston. Uh, Clarkston is considered to be the most diverse square mile in the nation. And I didn't realize this, but I think Clarkston like literally is one square mile. It's like tucked into a little corner of an exit off 285 and uh, Highway 78 going out away from Atlanta towards Athens. So it's a very small area that he runs. But, um, you know, part of his brand as mayor has been to uh, welcome refugees into that community. Um, in a launch interview with Sean Keenan at Atlanta Magazine, he said that uh, as a senator, he wanted to grow the nation's refugee resettlement program, and he wanted to streamline the immigration process for uh, asylum seekers. You know, That's a really pertinent topic uh, to what's going on on the border right now, and it stands in really stark contrast to the actions of the Trump administration and the views of David Perdue, he, who he would run against if he wins the primary. Um, let's start here with his record on immigration. What do y'all think of his record and what does he bring as a candidate on the issue of immigration in the general election? Do we think that that's an asset for him or or is it a liability in Georgia? I think it could be a strength because of his deep knowledge of the issue and he has a lot of personal experience with it because Immigration is usually used as this like abstract boogeyman issue that, you know, like immigrants are coming, not, you know, like here's this person who I know, who's my neighbor, who, you know, fled violence from whatever country. Like, I feel like Ted Terry will have a pretty strong counter to any immigration talk just because of the fact he has so much personal experience with it. And I think it is interesting that he is getting in, in this race uh, and, you know, it has such a record on that issue because from my recollection in 2014, David Perdue was kind of ahead of the curve on a lot of like Donald Trump's message. He didn't really campaign like Donald Trump very much, but as far as like the issues that Donald Trump spent a lot of his time on, David Perdue spent a lot of his time on them as well. And one of his principal issues was immigration. So I think... As far as having an interesting contrast between Purdue and Terry, I think that would definitely be true. And I think that would make it a powerful issue uh, that he is in a position to use really well. It's sort of hard to know how it would shake out. You know, for Democratic constituencies, it will definitely be a benefit. It will be something that Democrats like about Ted Terry, whereas the you know independents and Republican voters, it's less clear how they would interpret his uh, policies. I think Terry has the benefit of 
it also being a hot item right now and probably will continue to be. It also is like a very emotional item because there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who just really feel for our immigrant population right now, whether they do or don't support um, actual immigration policies. Um, he can definitely ride on the coattails of the fact that as a nation, we have treated immigrants poorly and that's been well documented and that sort of thing. The other thing that he has going for him is I read an article recently that said that he has crime stats on his, on Clarkston and that crime has not risen despite the increase in immigrant population, which is always something that is touted saying, oh, well, this is going to be a problem. This is why we shouldn't allow immigrants. But Clarkston doesn't have a crime problem, at least not any more of one than they may or may not have already had. Well, and in addition to the, you know, not having a crime problem spurred by the high level of immigrants and refugees in their community, he also uh, made Clarkson the first city to decriminalize marijuana. And that's another one of these things where um, criminal justice hawks will say, you know, decriminalizing drugs like marijuana will bring in crime into your community. And um, since they've decriminalized marijuana. They've had fewer marijuana citations. He said on the radio today that he felt like there were better relationships between the community and the police there because they weren't penalizing people for small things like marijuana possession. Um, and so, you know, on both of those counts, he has gone in a direction where Hawks would be concerned, but the the problems that they predict from these things haven't materialized. Yeah, I really don't have a dog in this fight. However, I do think that um, you, you see this candidate. He's a young guy. He's a mayor of a very small town that's not exactly affluent. When you're just looking at this from kind of a political perspective, how is he going to get the money and the name recognition to make a real run at this? Um, while I think that fundraising, I would just project maybe a challenge for him. One of the things that I think he has going is that Clarkston actually has a little bit of a national name insofar as how diverse it is. So it's been highlighted by Atlanta Magazine, by 11 Alive, by some other national magazines. It's like the Ellis Island of the South. Um, it is the, and I remember hearing this before, it is the most diverse square mile in America. And so if he's kind of really going to harp on the immigration factor, uh, and and push that hard because he has that designation of being the mayor uh, the mayor of the city with the most diversity the most diverse square mile in America. Uh, I think he may be able to get some kind of national press and national recognition if he really hits hard on this immigration uh, on this immigration topic. Like Megan said, that is already so hot right now. One other thing that will help Ted Terry is he is on the executive board of the state Democratic Party of Georgia, so he does have some connections with the party. And I know previously before getting on that position, he was the candidate recruitment chair. So it seems like he's recruited himself. So Ted Terry was on political rewind this afternoon and he got asked by the panelists, you know, what differentiated him from Teresa Tomlinson and why did he jump into this race? And he said that he was looking for somebody with more uh, progressive bona fides, somebody who had a bolder progressive vision, and he wasn't finding that among the candidates. So he decided to jump in for himself. And then I saw his list of uh, where he stood on policy on, on some major policy issues in an interview with the AJC. And he said that he uh, supported a Medicare for all who want it public option, which is a pretty significant difference in healthcare policy from Bernie Sanders style single payer. And he also said that he supports increasing the minimum wage, uh, but doesn't necessarily support increasing it to $15 an hour everywhere. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson is in the same spot on the minimum wage. She, in our interview with us, did not 
advocate for increasing it to $15 an hour. She only advocated for increasing it $2 immediately and then uh, creating a cost of living adjustment on that. And I guess he's a little bit further to the left than her on healthcare policy. The only really specific thing that she gave us in our interview was that she wanted to lower the Medicare age to 55. You know, you can look at their records, but when you look at the ideas that they're running on or or at least the ideas that they put out there so far, do we really think that Ted Terry in what he proposes will push this field to the left? Or do we feel like there's sort of a stronger gravitational pull to like centrist politicians in our in our Senate race? I don't know that this field like I understand that he said that he wanted more bona fide um political candidates or like more bona fide progressive political candidates. But I'm not sure I necessarily agree with him. I think that, um, at least from the LGBTQ perspective, Tomlinson is pretty progressive. In fact, she's kind of made a name for herself for many years on that front. Now, Terry's progressive too. He's actually uh, was, he oversaw Clarkston becoming the third city in Georgia to pass a non-discrimination ordinance. So he's definitely got, you know, his own, his own things to tout in that regard. But I just, I'm not sure that the party needs swinging because I think we've got two really solid candidates. One big difference between these two that you can see right off the bat is their opinions on impeachment. Uh, Teresa Tomlin supports impeachment now, and she supports it as a matter of the president abusing his powers and his authority. Uh, Ted Terry today said on the radio that he does not support impeachment, that he wants to beat Trump at the ballot box. Do we think that impeachment is a salient enough issue among Democratic voters for this to be a big dividing line in this primary? I I don't really think so. I mean, I I think Democrats in Georgia are looking for two things. They're looking for someone who is in the right positions on a spectrum of like Figer and has a chance in hell of winning. (laughs) And if you're in those like right places... I think that's really what folks are looking for. And I just, you know, like I've never had anyone I've ever talked to Democrat politics with, like bring up impeachment. It's really only something that like people in D.C. and people in Congress are talking about. And, you know, people in Congress should be talking about it because it's literally part of their job. But I don't really think there's going to be some like drag out debate fight between Terry and Tomlinson and anyone else that gets in on impeachment. I really don't think it'll come up because both of them would prefer that if they won, that Donald Trump would not be president when they entered office. So I just don't see it being a big issue. Well, and to be honest, if either of them becomes the next Senator from Georgia, Donald Trump is very unlikely to be president when they arrive. All right, Exactly. I will just say that my experience has been different from Luke's as far as the impeachment um, idea coming up in conversation. It's actually come up in a lot of conversations, mostly just because it's such a fraught issue. There is an opinion among some Democrats that impeaching Trump will be kind of an out of the frying pan into the fire situation um, with Pence stepping up and being worse than Trump. So like from that perspective... You know, there there is an issue with potentially pushing Trump out. And to me, going back to that question about whether Tomlinson is bona fide or not, um, that makes Tomlinson a bit more of a like left leaning candidate in my mind. 
Um, because, you know, it, it comes up all the time in conversations, like, we should get him out. It's a privilege to say that we should leave him in and wait for election or whatever. And I'm like, nah, but like, I'm not so sure that that's true. Yeah, I don't know how salient that'll end up being for Georgia voters. I think one instance, particularly among Georgia Democratic primary voters, where you might see a big difference between these two is on the issue of climate change. Um, So another thing that Ted Terry said in the media today in his sort of launch media tour, uh, he said twice, he said, uh, I'm Ted Terry, and I'm not a lawyer. And then he said, uh, when asked about his record, he said that he's been on the front lines of advocacy through his work with the AFL-CIO, the Obama campaign, and the Sierra Club, which he was the executive director of for a little while. When we talked with Teresa Tomlinson about climate change, she, I, I gave her two questions on the issue, and she told me a lot about the problems. She told me that we should be uh, bold and progressive and not be afraid of ideas. And then she gave me pretty much nothing concrete about what she would do on climate change. I think that, you know, Ted Terry, given his experience leading the Sierra Club, is p- probably sees that as a weakness from Tomlinson. Um, I, you know, maybe Ted Terry listened to our interview with Teresa, and, and that was part of his assessment of the candidates currently in the field. But but what do y'all think? Is climate change an issue salient to Georgia Democratic primary voters, or is it uh, just something that's kind of popped up in the national conversation? Climate change, I would think, is you know very relevant to most people our age, because uh, that one has come up a lot. And I, I think it's, you know, again, I don't think it's going to be the defining issue, but I think if Tomlinson does not start to articulate a more robust platform on it and even if it's you know just saying the standard (laughs) things that you know other people are saying and giving at least some specifics it doesn't have to be some revolutionary plan but she's got to have some plan for it or i think ted terry would be able to get advantage on her especially just because he is already pretty deep in the advocacy on this issue but really i typically the democrat campaigns that I've seen the primary campaigns I've seen. Most Democrats are really close. Like I, I feel like most Democratic statewide candidates are significantly closer than the presidential campaigns we're seeing run, and they all feel like they're almost saying the same thing. Democrats really look for stylistic differences between their their candidates and viability differences, and so I think both candidates will have to fight to pass that test. All right, so let's move on and talk about some money here. Um, So one reason that Terry might have entered this race is that we've now got fundraising totals coming in for several congressional candidates in Georgia and the top Democratic contenders for the White House. So most notable here, Teresa Tomlinson raised $520,000 in the second quarter of this year. That compares to David Perdue's $2 million that he raised. And this was less for Tomlinson than many other Democratic challengers across the country. And then in the presidential race, Mayor Pete led the hall in that race with $25 million, but Biden, Warren, and Sanders were close behind, raising a pretty good amount of cash on their own, and Harris rounded out the fundraising totals for the Big Five. So we'll talk about all this fundraising, plus we'll get to some of the other numbers uh, that are popping up from uh, candidates running for Congress in Georgia. But let's continue with this, talking about this Senate race and talking about uh, the fundraising hall for Teresa Tomlinson. How much do we think, Luke, you kind of previewed this for us earlier, so why don't you take the first crack at this? How much do you think that 
Tomlinson's second quarter number here spurred Terry into this race? And and how many other people do you think it could bring in? So last cycle, I feel like a lot of people felt like Abrams was a prohibitive front runner from day one and that Evans gave a valiant effort. And despite her being a longtime state representative who a lot of people respect and a lot of people still like, including myself, she got really trounced at the polls. And so I feel like Teresa Tomlinson was trying to set herself up as a similar prohibitive frontrunner very early. And this disclosure does not do that for her. And she doesn't have the name recognition that Abrams had because as... A lot of you might remember, Abrams also had a pretty unimpressive first disclosure. And so that really didn't like break down the idea of her campaign as much as I feel like Teresa Tomlinson's campaign has been hurt a little bit by the fact that she did not raise more money. So I think on that front alone, if someone like John Ossoff, like Sarah Riggs Miko, was considering getting in, I think that number really would encourage them to do so. And so with that in mind, I'm surprised Ted Terry was the first one to announce, but I really, really doubt he'll be the last one. Let's compare her numbers with some of the other Democratic challengers. Um, Leading the field among candidates who have been in for a little while, among other Democrats running for Senate, challenging Republicans in other states, Mark Kelly, who is running in Arizona, he raised $4.2 million. Ben Ray Lujan, who is trying to keep a seat in Democratic hands in New Mexico, he raised over a million. Two candidates who are seeking to challenge Cory Gardner in Colorado each raised over a million. Jamie Harrison, next door in South Carolina, raised a million and a half. Sarah Gideon in Maine, who is challenging Susan Collins, raised a million dollars. And then the Democrat who is challenging Tom Tillis in North Carolina, he also, like Tomlinson, raised $520,000, but he did that in two weeks, and Tomlinson did that in two months. Um, And then the really, the biggest outlier here uh, is Amy McGrath, who just announced her candidacy yesterday uh, to take on Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. She raised $2.5 million in in the day after she announced. So... Judging from these totals and from the total that we have from Tomlinson, do y'all have any thoughts on how competitive the Georgia Democrat is, whoever it will be, how competitive they can be compared to some of these other Democratic challengers in other states? I just I just like to put it out there from the Republican perspective that the fact that these fundraising numbers are as low as they are for the front runner, I think shows that Democrats both in the state and nationally kind of feel like with Stacey Abrams not getting in this race, that there's not this real opportunity to take on David Perdue, who brought in a healthy haul of $2 million uh, in his campaign war chest. And uh, and with fundraising numbers being slow, for me, it doesn't say as much about the numbers maybe as it does Democrats' confidence to take the seat. Yeah, I actually agree with Ben on that. I, th- I think when national Democrats are thinking about the seats that we can win— Arizona looks winnable because Martha McSally, who's the senator up, uh, got beat, you know, the last cycle. North Carolina. She got beat and she still became a senator. What a life. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, like North Carolina, we've won one, you know, we've won a race in there recently. Iowa, stretch, but possible. Maine. You know, these are, these are states. 
yeah, Colorado especially, are states where Democrats feel like there's a good chance there's there's proof on the presidential level or some other reason why you feel like this is a state that uh, Democrats could win. Amy McGrath is running against America's boogeyman and worst person, Mitch McConnell. So obviously she's going to raise a, mun- a bunch of money uh, because even if there was two voter, you know, three voters in uh, Kentucky. One was Mitch McConnell, one was Mitch McConnell's wife, and the other was Amy McGrath. She would still raise all that money in trying to beat him. Uh, so Georgia, though, like we don't have this national hatred for David Perdue that someone like Mitch McConnell, someone like Ted Cruz has on the left. Uh, and you don't have the clear path to victory like some of these other states have. Georgia's a hypothetical victory. It's not a it's not a really proven path. And so on that front, I think that's why she's not doing better. The other reason she might not be doing better, and this is just anecdotal, but from what I have seen of her campaign, she seems to be doing a lot of events and seems to be traveling a lot because her social media is very active. And I, I don't know, but I'd be curious if uh, she's adopting a similar strategy to uh, Elizabeth Warren, who has sworn off uh, big fundraisers completely. I doubt Tomlinson's done that. But uh, the other half of her swearing off big fundraisers is that Warren strategy is that she gets to spend more time in front of actual voters and from appearances it seems like Tomlinson is also spending a lot of time in front of voters and so maybe they've asked you know maybe maybe the logic is you don't need a lot of money in the early race which is true so they raise enough to buy you know hire some staff and pay for travel and they're focusing on talking to people and then they're going to raise more money later it's it's quite possible um, I think another consideration in the Tomlinson funding, um, another question worth asking at least is uh, Stacey Abrams group, Fair Fight Action, they raised uh, $3.9 million this last quarter and they have $1.13 million cash on hand. Um, she's not a candidate for anything right now. She's running this outside group that has uh, already contributed some funding to um, some abortion providing organizations in the state. They've said they're going to contribute to uh, state legislative candidates. Um, that money is probably going to go a lot of places. But do you think that the money that she raised or the fact that, you know, if you ask anybody who the top Democrat in the state of Georgia is, I bet everyone's still going to say Stacey Abrams. Does either the money she raised or the, the stature that she still has impact Tomlinson at all? Again, I would just say it does in insofar as it is that Tomlinson is not her. And so that is just kind of the lack of confidence and the lack of energy there. And that hits on fundraising, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, if, if, if Stacey Abrams were to announce, people would be so excited because they feel like she came so close to Brian Kim and she's really got a shot. And, and the point is that, that Teresa Tomlin's not Teresa Tomlin. It's that she's not Stacey Abrams. You know, it's, it's, you know, that's going to be the line, you know, oh, she's a good candidate. She's no Stacy, but she's a good, is kind of the line. And, and that doesn't make people write checks. And so, uh, I don't think it, it breeds confidence. I don't think it breeds, um, it certainly does, it, you know, proof is in the pudding. It, it doesn't make people sign the bottom line. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on this one. It's, it's not ideal. I would say it is. Well, (laughs) (laughs) let's talk a little bit about the presidential numbers here. So the 
we have we don't have numbers from everybody yet, but the top of the field has released their numbers. Budicic at almost twenty five million, Biden at uh, twenty one and a half, Warren at nineteen, Sanders at eighteen, Harris at twelve. What do we think about these numbers? Is is there anything we learn about either Budicic leading the field or Harris kind of coming in? fifth here after she had a good week during the debate week. Do we have any takeaways from the numbers out of the presidential race? If I were betting on this, I would have bet the other way around. I would have bet Harris at the top of the field and Buttigieg, you know, a contender for sure, but probably bottom of the top five. So this was actually really surprising to me. I wasn't surprised by the Buttigieg number just because it sort of been the the rumor mill for honestly a couple i feel like a month that Buttigieg was having a really successful time fundraising had been the rumor for quite some time in democratic circles so i wasn't very surprised by his number really the numbers that surprised me was kamala harris's number was significantly lower than i expected it to be and then warren's was a lot better than i thought it would be and i'm really surprised that she beat bernie sanders so on, on that front, I think Democrats have a lot to be excited about because with Warren swearing off big dollar fundraisers and Bernie swearing them off as well, they've both done a really good job raising money. Uh, so the, I, I feel like that tells Democrat candidates that there are other untapped opportunities for fundraising that's out there. Because the really crazy thing about both of their halls is unlike a candidate like David Perdue or even Donald Trump, who's raised significant money uh, for their reelections as well. Pretty much all of the donors that Warren and Sanders and probably Teresa Tomlinson with her low number are people that they can come back to. And the, you know, they aren't facing lists that are completely maxed out, probably quite the opposite where they have, you know, listing list of people who have already been willing to sign the, you know, dog line or, you know, press that button on the website and gave them, you know, $20 or whatever. And, you know, they can hit them up all cycle and they'll probably never actually fully max out, but you can consistently get money from, people in a pinch. And that's that's worth a lot for those campaigns. Yeah, I think it's a good sign for Warren and Sanders that they have pretty healthy halls on that strategy. But I actually think the fact that Warren has a healthy hall with that strategy is a really bad sign for Bernie Sanders himself. Oh, I agree. Uh, totally. Because, um, you know, because they're they're the main ideological uh, competitors in that lane. And, you know, this is Warren's first presidential campaign. It's it's Bernie Sanders' second presidential campaign. And Sanders raised a ton of money on this strategy last time around against Hillary Clinton. But, you know, Sanders, like the theory of his candidacy is that he is the catalyst for a political revolution. And the catalyst for a political revolution does not come in fourth place in fundraising for a quarter and also second to the other person who is uh, executing this grassroots fundraising strategy. So I think... You know, Sanders is in no way out of this race, but I think the fact that he doesn't have this lane to himself to then be able to gather all of those resources to take on the more centrist establishment lane that is dominated by Biden and at least in the money race dominated by Mayor Pete, I think is a bad sign for him going forward. Yeah, revolutions aren't cheap. The other person we haven't mentioned yet, though, is uh, old Beto O'Rourke. And I, I have a feeling his numbers probably got impressive. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is so the the totals are not due until the 15th. Is that right? Correct. I think so. 
That is correct. Um, so, so that's why we have holes in the data that we have right now. And, and we'll talk about the congressional races here in a minute where we only have kind of scattershot data, but definitely the candidates who had big halls announced those and wanted to show the rest of the field, you know, particularly mayor Pete, I think he was the first one to announce his total, um, wanted to show off the amount of money they had to, to grab a new cycle and, and to show their capacity. Let's talk a little bit about the, the numbers that we do have in the Georgia congressional races. Um, so in the seventh congressional district, we have Carolyn Bordeaux. She raised 279 grand in the second quarter, and she has 527 grand in cash on hand. Uh, Lynn Homrick, who is on the Republican side of Georgia 7, she's going to announce that she raised 250 grand in the second quarter, and she loaned herself another 250 grand. So she is tracking close with Bordeaux in terms of cash. Um, Macbeth also raised $500,000 this quarter, uh, but we have those numbers. We don't have numbers for Karen Handel or Brandon Beach out of Georgia 6. We, and we, out of Georgia 7, we don't have numbers for Brenda Lopez, Nabila Islam, Brene Unterman. Uh, and we also don't have numbers for some of the lower tier candidates on both of those races. Uh, but is there anything that y'all draw out of the numbers that we do have in terms of who's competitive, who's not, who uh, maybe is sending a signal by having not announced their fundraising yet? I don't think that there's a signal sent by anybody for not reporting yet. Uh, there can be a, a million different reasons why your your numbers aren't up yet. But um, I think in the seventh district race for Republicans um, with Lynn Homrick's numbers coming in, uh, you know, you could have uh, assumed that she had money and was wealthy. The former VP of HR for Home Depot, she's going to have connections and uh, and personal wealth herself. So that's not super surprising, but it certainly does put her um put her in that kind of top tier of that race i think you'll also see renee unterman come in with a with a substantial pull i expect her to do well in fundraising uh in the sixth district we'll see what karen handel comes in with i expect her to outraise to be honest or to outspend lucy Macbeth in this race i know the nrcc will be treating her as an incumbent in this race uh even though she's uh obviously um challenging lucy Macbeth. but um but i think you'll see with her six with a substantial pull I'm also interested to see in the number that Brandon Beach pulls in, uh, being not only a state senator, but also the chairman of the North Fulton Chamber of Commerce, a lot of business connections. I think that he'll also have a lot of money to play with in, uh, in the in the 6th district race. And then we'll see kind of some of the, the no-name people, if anybody surprises us with numbers on the Republican side in both the 7th and the 6th. Quick question. Maybe somebody can answer this. If not, we'll table it for, I don't know, another podcast. Do we know what Macbeth has on hand? And do we know if Handel outspent Macbeth in the last election that Macbeth won? I don't think we knew answers. I would guess that Handel outspent, but I don't know that for sure. I would too. I'm just, I, I'm, I guess what I'm driving at is how much of an indicator is Handel's outspending Macbeth? It's going to matter. Uh, Karen spent not nearly as much as she spent on the Ossoff race, obviously. I want to say, if I remember correctly, she spent $2 million, is what I want to say in the last Macbeth race. I think Macbeth spent one point something. Um, and then moving forward, um, I mean, it's just an expensive seat. The media markets uh, trying to, to kind of get out uh, to, to all the different kind of sex within that sixth district is kind of tricky and it's just an expensive seat to win. So I think that money is going to win, is going to play a factor. I think that if you want to have uh, a real shot at, at, at 
for well, starting for the Republican primary, your minimum buy-in is going to be uh, a half a million. If you don't raise a half a million, you're just not going to be able to, to get your name out there enough. And then in the general election, uh, I think that, that both candidates uh, for the Republican and Democrat will have to at least spend $2 million to be in play on it. Gotcha. I think the other thing there from the Democratic side, too, is that for Democrats to maintain the House, they are going to have to hold some of the Republican seats that they flipped in 2018. And I would imagine that McBass is one of the tougher ones to hold. But she also, given her uh, her personal story, her connections to uh, groups advocating for gun control, um, she's going to have access to that kind of money, too. And I, you know, and then Georgia may be at the center of the presidential race. We're going to have probably a competitive Senate race. So there's going to be money coming from a lot of different directions to uh, support these candidates, particularly down the stretch next fall. It's a good time to be a political campaign fundraiser. (laughs) All right. So let's move on to our final topic for the week. Um, So Congressional visits and legal audits have uncovered some absolutely horrific detention conditions for people who cross the southern border seeking asylum, women forced to drink from toilets, kids forced to sleep on concrete floors with no blankets, descriptions of sexual assault and psychological warfare have led the headlines in recent weeks. And all this while a secret Facebook group of current and former Border Patrol agents was uncovered, showing a rash of sexist and xenophobic comments from the same agents charged with caring for migrants. It's a real shit show on the border right now. Uh, But let's talk about what is being done in Congress to address this issue and how this issue uh, is impacting our politics. Um, Let's start with the detention of children. And and this is uh, really one of the most fraught policy issues that the government is dealing with right now. And, and there are two important questions here for the federal government about how they're treating children in these detention facilities. Um, and this all spurs from a, a 1990s court settlement called the Flores Settlement that dictated conditions under which children are to be the conditions by which children are to be treated if they are held in immigration detention. Uh, Part of that agreement was that they were supposed to be uh, removed from the custody of Customs and Border Patrol and transferred to the custody of Health and Human Services within 72 hours, and that this process is then supposed to resettle children with their closest uh, family member in the U.S. if if one is available. Um, But this is not what has been happening Uh, The Customs and Border Patrol has been holding up to 2,000 children uh, for days or weeks, much beyond the timeline allowed under the Flores settlement. Um, Some of the conditions that were found in this oversight, particularly of detention for children, were extreme cold temperatures, lights on 24 hours a day, no access to adequate medical care, basic sanitation, water, or adequate food. This is a particularly fraught question given the legal reality around how children are supposed to be treated, but it's also probably the most enraging moral issue here because these are children um, and how they're being treated is, is completely unacceptable. Let's talk a little bit about how the political system is responding to this crisis. Both Democrats and Republicans are now agreeing that there is a crisis at the border. Uh, previously, Democrats were rejecting the argument that there was a crisis because that was what precipitated Donald Trump declaring a national emergency uh, based on what they were describing as a fake crisis at the time. It's now a real crisis in everyone's eyes. Luke, what are congressional Democrats doing to address this issue? And, and, 
have we learned in the past few weeks that congressional Democrats are united on how to address uh, conditions for migrants detained at the border? Democrats in disarray. No. (laughs) (laughs) As always. Yeah. No. I mean, I think this is one of those fights where the media is making it out that Democrats are in a bigger fight than I think they actually are. There are some members who are quite loud about opposing the deal that was made. But if you look at like many of the popular Democrats that were elected in competitive districts, they went for this deal. It's really just some of the more louder, newer voices that were against the deal that Congress came up with to address a lot of these issues. I don't think this is something that's going to cause a larger divide in the party because, frankly, I this is an issue that is so emotionally charged that I think there is time for like blatant honesty in how we got here. A lot of people on both sides have addressed how bad some things are in South and Central America, and that's why people are coming here, and they're coming here because they want a better life. And that's reasonable and understandable, and people want to come here using the regular process. But we are at a point where the things have gotten so bad in Central and South America that so many people are coming that the resources that we have invested are not enough to handle the problem. And so these conditions that we're, we see, you know, are inevitable if you don't build a system to respond to them and equip the people who work for Border Patrol to have the training necessary, but also the facilities necessary to handle this influx of people. So on that front, I feel like most people, if they're being honest about this debate, the bill that got done which provided more funding for shelter, for the essentials of keeping people sanitary and safe. Most people would not disagree with that. And I think the voices that were pushing for more don't really disagree with the necessity and the urgency of what was done. They would just like to see more be done. And I don't feel like considering the gravity of this issue and considering how dire the situation is that deep down they would want to allow those conditions to continue for significantly longer over the disagreements that they had now their votes reflect the you know dissatisfaction they have with not having the parts of the you know having more oversight and having more ability to check in on what's happening in these facilities right now. But frankly, that's just something that both sides of the table could not come to quick enough to respond to what is a real crisis. I would disagree with that a little bit. Um, And I should say before I get into this answer that I I need to credit Dara Lind, formerly at Vox, now at ProPublica, an immigration reporter, an excellent immigration reporter who reporting we're relying on for a lot of this. But she described this split between Democrats this way. She said that they're split between one group that believes that the solution to this issue is more money and more resources to deal with these uh, poor detention conditions. And then another group 
the progressives led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and the group becoming known as the squad of, of new, newly elected progressive members um, who believe that the institution of Customs and Border Patrol and the institution of ICE are so rotten to their core that continuing to fund a detention system that is managed by these two agencies will only make the problem worse. And this is where I think this issue of a secret Facebook group comes in because uh, this group that was uncovered by ProPublica found that 9,500 current or former Customs and Border Patrol agents were making uh, sexist and racist and xenophobic jokes um, in this Facebook group and and that this was just one illustration of how rotten these two agencies are to their core and that if you don't do things like force the Trump administration to take up standards of care, medical standards of care, uh, other protections for children, that these agencies, they just won't do it. That it's not a resource constraint, but it is it is their view. It is their view of these people that is influencing how they're treating them. Um, I can't remember who said it, but but somebody described it as the cruelty is the point. And I think that's the message coming from the left. But I think there is disagreement on how far do you push that? And do you in the short term, basically cut off funding and make this problem worse to make it better in the long run? Megan, I know you've got strong feelings about these conditions. Do you have thoughts on that strategic question for Democrats or how people who do feel strongly about this should consider that part of the problem? I don't think the answer is to like make the problem worse to make it better. These are real people with real lives that we're dealing with here. And so we need to do this in the most humane way possible. And while I understand the strategy from that perspective, um, trust me, I've used that strategy for several things before myself, but in this case, it's not acceptable. These are humans. And I, you know, I want to follow up on that too, because I think the progressives are doing themselves a disservice if they don't recognize that even if Border Patrol and ICE had different leadership, had different personnel, I still firmly believe that we would be in a similar position that we are now. Because, you know, there's been that video going around of a uh, Trump administration lawyer defending the fact that they didn't have toothbrushes, defending the fact that they didn't have some of the, you know, bare essentials like soap. But I'm pretty sure that case started in the Obama administration. So, like, this has been a problem that these, you know, these departments have not had the kind of resources that they've needed to deal with the amount of people coming over the border when we have these peak times when a lot of people are coming all at once. And so I think regardless of what the institutional beliefs are about immigrants more money is needed and at least in my point of view these are people this is a humanitarian crisis and if at least in the short term both parties can come into an agreement that that is unacceptable that we should put out that fire try to get these people the help that they deserve and then come to fight for reforming ICE, reforming Border Patrol, because 
if we're being sincere that these are human beings and the way they are being treated is unacceptable, it would be entirely hypocritical to then turn around and use their lives and use their suffering as a political bargaining chip. And I don't think that considering the heartlessness of this administration on this issue and that they enjoy the fact that it is so harsh. If this was President Jeb Bush, if this was President Marco Rubio, this would be a different story and maybe that strategy would work. But for this administration, they would love it if that's the path that they took, that Democrats took, because cruelty is the point. Ben, uh, Ross Douthat wrote a column in the New York Times and he basically took both sides of this issue to task about their views on immigration. But of of the right, he said that religious conservatives have been too blasé about the conditions that at the migrant camps and um, have not put enough pressure on the Trump administration to have a moral responsibility to migrants. What do you think of that argument? I mean, do you think that there should be groups on the right or, or voices on the right who are calling out the administration to say that if you really do believe that cruelty is a point, that that is a, a, a terrible position to have? No, I think that there there have been those calls. I know the the denomination of the church of which I'm a part has uh, has said that if they that if it would be, to be opened up to where nonprofits could go in and do more, then they would send down kind of both funds and people to go and assist. And I think that there has been that call. Maybe it could have been louder and could have been done in a better way. But I think there has been that call. And and, and to be fair, the call is not do a better job. The call is. Uh, and this is typical of, of conservatives. It, it's, hey, we want to step in and help. So it's not like Trump do a better job, spend more money, send more people down. It's like, look, the conditions are so bad. We want to go down and help. And I've heard that from like a number of nonprofits and church organizations who want to go down there and assist. But I mean, I think that um, I think that the Trump administration could have done a better job with this. I also think that the Trump administration tried to make sure that this didn't happen months ago whenever they saw the numbers increasing, when Secretary Nelson said we're going up 200 percent and border crossings, Vox uh, cited that we were uh, at an 11 year high. And they said, hey, there's a border crisis. And you remember when Democrats like a couple of months ago were saying there's no border crisis that's manufactured. Well, guess what? Now all you hear is border crisis, border crisis. So if we would have stopped border crossings, then we wouldn't have had as much overflow in these detention centers and conditions wouldn't be as bad as they are. But we are in this situation now in the Trump administration, uh, as well as Congress. And I was glad to see that they were able to actually come together and, and make a compromise. Um, they, they have to, you know, you broke it, you buy it. You're in this situation. Both parties are in this situation. And now we need to do a better job of, of taking care of those in, uh, in the detention centers. So on the Democratic side, uh, you've seen uh, several leading candidates come out with proposals um, to kind of condense these proposals into kind of one big point here. All of them share in common that they basically want to significantly reduce federal detention of, of migrants, particularly of people seeking asylum. They want to increase the ability of people to seek asylum. Uh, they they want to use detention in very limited circumstances I think my view on this issue has been all of those things are good in terms of finding a solution to the most immediate problem, but there is a lack of a discussion in our politics making a positive case for 
immigration. And, and there is a positive case out there. Matt Iglesias at Vox wrote up a nice literature review where he talked about the many benefits that immigration brings, not only to immigrants who come to the U.S., but to native-born citizens, uh, higher labor productivity, higher wages. It is a benefit to the federal budget because it it increases the size of the workforce in the United States, and the workforce is what largely supports the largest entitlement programs, which is Medicare and Social Security. You're paying into those with your payroll taxes, but if you have fewer workers supporting more people who are retired, that creates a financial problem for those programs and immigration, and growing the workforce through immigration is a solution to that problem. Um Cultural diversity in a, in and of itself actually has economic benefits. Uh, cultural diversity in part raises housing values and more desirable neighborhoods for people who want to live in more culturally diverse areas. Um, and then last but not least, immigration is a big benefit to the people who come here. Uh, higher skilled immigrants can increase their wages by a factor of five or six, and lower skilled immigrants can increase their wages by tenfold or more. Um, these are big benefits in this policy that are often overlooked when you're trying to solve the short-term problem of what to do about these detention conditions. But if you change the narrative around the immigration issue in and of itself and viewed immigration in a more positive light, which the Trump administration and this uh, conservative movement that he leads has, has really won the battle in demonizing immigrants, at least in the political narrative, um, that I think is another sort of larger way to move the conversation towards a solution to the short-term problem by defining the benefits of immigration in and of itself. Um, what do y'all think of that argument and and the Democratic response here? Do you think that an affirmative case for immigration is a good thing for Democrats to be making? I think Democrats definitely need to make that case, but I also think it's not really going to make much difference among the people that immigration is an issue that they really care about because, frankly, I just don't really believe that there are that many people in America who view immigration through a financial lens and that if you just convince them that immigrants actually bring more money to the country, that that will change their minds. Because I think most people are opposed to the idea of increased immigration more for cultural reasons and racial reasons and just that that's at the core of it i don't think anyone like i I don't think donald trump has pushed this issue and gone out on stage and just like convinced america that economically immigrants are bad he's trying to convince and stoke the beliefs that people have legantly that immigrants are not you and you are good. So anyone who is not you is bad. And I don't think Democrats going out there and making that case will from a like financial economic lens is really going to make people feel any differently. I don't think it hurts. And I think if you combine it with a, you know, message of, American values of this is a country of immigrants of you know talking about what the Statue of Liberty says and talking about how you know this country has been built over the years on refugees that's actually a more successful strategy in my mind than the purely economic strategy because I think 
immigrants are being painted right now in an unpatriotic, un-American lens, and there are a lot of voters for whatever reason uh, that feel that it's impossible for an immigrant to be an American. And that's just, you know, frankly, hasn't been true ever in our history. And we're uh, amazing at assimilating a vast amount of people to this country. So I think on that front, um, I think that's a more successful strategy than talking about the economic benefits solely. All right. Well, I think that is a good point to end on. Um, So, uh, Luke, thank you for joining for a very spirited discussion today. Thank you. Megan, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. And Ben, thank you. Thanks so much. Y'all have a good one. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there and we're going to talk to y'all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.